Hello, this is World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're happy to have you with us here at Merge in downtown Iowa City. Tonight, our topic is a big one, artificial intelligence, and we'll be referring to it as AI throughout the program. The concept may have first been popularized in science fiction, but it's real now, and it's all around us. From disembodied communication partners like Siri and Alexa to targeted marketing, intelligent vehicles, advanced medical diagnostics, and deepening layers of social media analytics, AI is changing the way we live, work, and play. But what is artificial intelligence? We're going to explore AI by looking at developments in three major areas, business, medicine, and engineering and technology. Um, our guests in the first segment on artificial intelligence in business are Nick Street, Henry B. Tippy Research Professor of Management Sciences, the Department of Management Sciences at the UI Tippy College of Business. And Nick is just next to me. Thanks for being here. Thanks very much, Joan. Pleasure. And Patrick Fenn is the next person uh, uh, next to Nick. Um, he is the Henry B. Tippy Chair in Business Analytics and a professor in the Department of Management Sciences, also in the Tippy College of Business. Thanks, Patrick. Thank you. Mm -hmm. At the far end, we have Tong Wang, who's an assistant professor in the Department of Management Sciences, again in the Tippy College of Business. Thank you for being here, Tong. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So, Nick, I've been told that you were the first data scientist um, hired on the faculty at the Tippy College of Business, and I wonder if you can tell us what a data scientist does in the field of business. Well, we didn't call it that no. uh, that long ago. Mm -hmm. uh, we didn't have really computers, so we didn't have data. Um, but yes, I've been in Tippy for uh, 20 years, and we've always had, for historical reasons, this strange little artificial intelligence group, um, because going back to the days of expert systems, if I can get my computing system to behave in a smart way, I can make better decisions. And if I can make better decisions, one of the implications of that is that I can, I can do a better job separating people from their money. <laughs> so decision science has settled com com comfortably into uh, as, as a business thing, right? Uh, it's like operations research. How do I make better decisions? That's where we focus. And AI, especially machine learning, uh, which is the sub-branch of AI that the three mm -hmm. of us represent, um, is an important technology in getting there. So if I can learn from examples, then I can do a better job predicting what's going to happen next, whether it's uh, the movement of a particular stock or uh, whether you're likely to buy the thing I'm trying to sell you. Mm -hmm like this conversation. And uh, again, I can target better my time and effort in reaching out to the right people. Mm -hmm. If we were to go back uh, 35 years before we were in the computer world we're in these days, how would you be teaching at the Tippy College in, uh, to, uh, how would you be helping your students learn how to better understand their uh, possibilities and their current sales? If you go back far enough, it's statistics. And that's still the foundation of a lot of what we do. Um, yeah, we would teach statistics and how to get to the expected return of a particular action. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's still the foundation, mm -hmm. okay? Mm -hmm. It's just that we can leverage all of this data that people are collecting about you every day in order to make better decisions about you. Mm -hmm. So that's, uh, 
statistics sure. plus computation mm -hmm. approximately is how we get to machine learning in the first place and generalize about what people like you would like. Mm -hmm. So when your students come into the TP College now, um, are they excited about what they can do with machine learning and with, with um, examining data that's just all around them? Oh gosh, yes. <laughs> um, <clears throat> too much so. Um, we started this major, uh, a business analytics major, uh, which is the term that we use. And in fact, we're changing the name of the department to be business analytics. Mm. We started it five years ago, and we've got 400 <coughs> students now. Wow. And we also go off campus to teach a master's program. And that's got 300-ish. We teach in three different uh, remote sites. Uh, so we're injecting this kind of computational and quantitative sophistication into Iowa businesses every chance we can by going out into Des Moines and Quad Cities and Cedar Rapids and teaching mm -hmm. uh, at, a, at a higher level. And we teach uh, cool things like how to analyze text and uh, deep learning and trendy things like that, but the mm -hmm. foundation of it is mm -hmm. how do I decide what people are gonna do next? Mm -hmm. And how do you keep up with all the new tools and all the new um, um, the, the kinds of functionalities that are being developed? Um, I mean, how can you sort through all of that even as a, as a professor? Um, as a former department head, what I do is I hire smart people. <laughs> uh, that's called learning by hiring. <laughs> yes. I've learned a little bit about management <laughs> just over the years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's the nature of our field, and it mm -hmm. always has been. Mm -hmm. We only can live in a world where everything changes every five years. That's yeah. what we do. Mm -hmm. And you'll have computer scientists and such up here later. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. We're all used to it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's, we, we're trying to develop lifelong learner, learners, but we have to be. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, so, so that's a good segue into Patrick here. So Patrick, you're on the faculty also at Tippy, and um, I know that you're involved in, in lots of different projects. Tell us, give us an example of a couple of things you've worked on. Yeah, I mean, for me, uh, I have a training in uh, natural language processing, computational linguistics. So uh, I have done a lot of research uh, in the text analytic domains. Uh, I also do the social media analytics as well to analyze these online reviews, user opinions, things like that. So one of the projects that I did uh, very successfully in the year uh, 2008, 2009, is I applied text mining, uh, natural language processing, to analyze the firm disclosures, like a 10K, 10Qs, those annual reports. And when you use text mining to mine those annual reports, you can potentially see the patterns that uh, some of the firms are using uh, to mislead the investors. Uh, mm. So this is called a fraud detection. So if you can read between the lines, if you can uh, try to come up with a better way to predict the potential fraud risk, I think you can save the shareholders a lot of money. And so this is the thing that we try to do. We got the funding from PwC and, and uh, uh, KPMG for $300,000, so we work with them, try to basically develop this new technique that it can mine these uh, uh, firm disclosures to predict the potential fraud risks. Now the SEC is using the methodology right now, uh, to the adopt the methodology, and they try to basically screen through this annual report. Wow. And then try to uh, 
catch those uh, early on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow, is that a proprietary kind of um, um, product that you've developed? It's, you know, this is basically a sponsor research, mm-hmm. and so uh, it's, it is proprietary. Mm-hmm. And, but however, I think you know, anybody who knows how to do text mining and natural language processing, if they saw the news news release, they should be able to follow the procedure and then do that themselves. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, huh. but I think it's uh, uh, one of those things where you can see this. This is the back in two thousand eight, where the big data and uh, the uh, you know this uh, uh, analytics has not you know picking off yet. Mm-hmm. But you still see that you know people are working very hard trying to apply this analytics you know, creatively for mm-hmm. the business domains. And nowadays, if you see, um, like the part that I do, you know, I also apply this analytics to the uh, uh, social media and online reviews, where you can mine a lot of that uh, from there. For example, when you look at Amazon product reviews, not only are you gonna see the people talk about the positive side, right? You also see people talk about the negative side of the product. So can you potentially uncover the product defect information? So we have done uh, a fair amount of work trying to using this natural language processing to mine the product defect information from those online reviews and then try to help the manufacturers do a better job to improve the product. So one recent project we are working on right now is try to look at those online reviews, see whether we can find this unsatisfied user needs and then try to basically do a better product innovation for the manufacturers. Mm. So is this an area of employment in some of these big, big, big companies? Uh, you know, if you're an online company, uh, you obviously want to know what's not satisfying your customers, exactly. right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And we were also talking, talking beforehand about targeted marketing, and um, I think all of us, everyday users of uh, the Internet and of our phones and um, shopping sites and so on, are all fam- familiar with this sort of eerie, sense that somebody knows exactly what you're interested in or they're yeah. trying to tell you hey, f- from past experience I think you might like to look at this um, is that ever going to, that will that will just they will get more and more intensely into our lives in the future do you think? Yeah, I think uh, this is the uh, uh, the area called target marketing and uh, where the AI and uh, also the personalization aspect are really coming to play and basically, these uh, large vendors like Google, Microsoft, all this uh, uh, Facebook, they basically you know leverage the uh, surfing history of the users, and then they try to do the inference from the users for their uh, uh, interest, mm-hmm. and then they basically target you know all the different products and services you know tailored to these users uh, yeah. for their interest, and it's a huge market, uh, and the online advertising has grown tremendously in the last uh, ten or twenty years or so. And uh, this is also the major revenue model for the large IT firms, especially for Google, Microsoft, and Facebook. Uh, so uh, I don't see this going to slow down, especially when you have this big data and all the data uh, comes available. I think you're going to see more and more of these kind of applications. Mm-hmm. The thing to remember is you'll see more of it as long as it works. Mm-hmm. Once it stops working, they'll stop doing it. Hmm. So we're making the high-level decision of what intervention gets this person to do the thing we want. Mm -hmm. And if badgering them turns them off, they'll stop badgering. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay, If the alumni association calls you every day, you don't donate. Mm -hmm. So they're optimizing how to get what they want. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if you don't like the online ads, don't click on them. Hmm. That's good advice. Thank you. Uh, um, and Tong, let's just hear a little bit about some of your work, um, generally what you do and, and what you teach, but also some of the work you've been doing uh, related to crime, which I find so interesting. 
Yeah, I, I work on uh, interpretable machine learning models that are models that human can understand. Because most of the state-of-the-art machine learning models are black box, where you don't know what's going on. So you, you give the model input, the model tells you the, the output, but a human has no idea what really happens. So interpretable models can help human to understand how the decision is made. So this will help uh, some domain experts, like a doctors or like a police officers, if the if the model can tell you the result and also tells you how the result is generated. And I'll work on applying these models to uh, healthcare, to criminology, and some uh, consumer analysis. And so, for example, I worked on a project on detecting crime series, and the data was from the Cambridge Police Depart Department, and they were housebreaks. So most housebreaks, you don't know the suspects because they happen at daytime when everybody's out. So the residents do not know the suspect information. So there's no way to link them. So in that project, we helped the police officers detect which crimes were actually committed by the same criminal or same group of criminals. So they can just link them together and analyze them together as a serious crime. And then following that crime, uh, that project, we also developed an algorithm to predict, you know, based on the previous offenses, where the criminal is going to hit next. Yeah, this is what the crime project. And for my teaching, I, I teach the undergrad students and also the, the masters about the uh, basic uh, introduction to data mining, help them to understand the very fundamental concepts and thinking in data mining. And uh, eventually, after the course, they should be able to you know, use some software to solve a data mining problem. So data mining means what? It means you, you've got this whole batch of stuff out there and, you, and you, you have to find ways to get into it to find the meaningful information? Data mining means to use mathematical tools to extract insights from data in order to make better decisions. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it, it can mean different things in different fields, but uh, essentially it's helping people to understand data and to make better decisions. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So with the algorithms you've created and um, you've worked with the police department, I don't know if, if this is you know person-to-person -person work you've done with the department, but does your model do as good a job at predicting what might happen next with these various criminals as the, the human projection? Yes, yeah. yeah. so the model is learning from the data hand-labeled by a very experienced detective who has been working the field for 30 years. So the model is basically just replicating what he would do in different situations, but uh, a thousand times faster. Oh, yeah. sure, sure. <laughs> wow. <laughs> uh, so it would, would, uh, from your feedback from uh, the police department there and other work you've done, I mean, is this something that is becoming part of police work around the country? Well, not around the country, but the NYPD is incorporating that in their DWS system. And the algorithm actually helped the Cambridge Police Department to correct some mistakes they have made previously. Wow. Wow. Huh. So um, from any of you, what's the next step? What's, what's on the horizon in, in business or in any of the fields you work in? Okay, so <clears throat> I think uh, to me, um, uh, as we all know right now, the deep learning has really uh, become the hot topic uh, mm -hmm. in all the field not only in the business school, but also in medicine, in engineering. So I can potentially see that uh, people can apply deep learning more broadly uh, to tackle a lot of these uh, very hard issues that we cannot solve before. Mm -hmm. can, you, can you just explain deep learning, what, what that yeah, means? Yeah, I mean, deep learning is uh, one type of uh, 
um, uh, machine learning technique, uh, basically, you know, uh, step out from this neural network research we have done many, many years back. It tried to mimic the uh, human brains, how the human brains are working, using these different layers of, uh, uh, of the neurons, and then try to uh, basically do the inference. And deep learning, uh, in, compared to the traditional neural networks, is much more complicated than the, uh, the simple neural network. It has uh, multiple layers of neurons interconnected with each other. And each layer may have many, many nodes available. So you could have a uh, neural network that have millions of parameters that you have to estimate based on the large amount of data that you capture, you know, of, that's available. So uh, if we do not have the cloud computing, if we do not have the infrastructure or GPU, things like that, there's no way we can make this kind of breakthrough in deep learning today. So with the help of this IT and the cloud computing and big data, we can basically leverage deep learning to do all kinds of things that we cannot do before. So that's why, why I think you know this is probably going to be the frontier that how can we tap this new technology like deep learning to basically tackle some of those decision-making uh, issues. Mm-hmm. Mine is kind of sideways from mm-hmm. that and goes back to what Tom was talking about. On our side, we're going to have to build interpretable models as time goes on. Um, the European data privacy law mm-hmm. uh, is affecting everything that anybody does with algorithmic decision making. If I get turned down for a loan in uh, the EU right now, and of course somebody like me built that model to say this person shouldn't get this loan, and they call up and say, why did you turn me down? I have to answer them. So even though the deep learning network can do a fabulous job at determining how big of a risk I am, you deserve to know how the decision was made. And that's the way that we uncover biases and other problematic areas within these models. We don't know they're there. Mm -hmm. We take the data that we find and we build models on it. Mm -hmm. Okay? But if you can't understand how the model makes the predictions it makes, you're subject to those problems. And so either building something complex and then pulling simple rules out of it or forcing the model to be a simple rule-based thing in the first place uh, is almost going to be mandatory as we go forward. Mm-hmm. I wonder if I could ask a question related to the to sort of um, uh, the potential for governmental regulation for um, this kind of data gathering, data management, um, data manipulation, all these various things. Um, there's a lot of discussion about just what kind of regulation there should be. And um, some people, I think, had felt for a long time that self-regulation would do the trick. Uh, if you think about groups like Facebook, do any of you want to weigh in on that? What's the appropriate level of, of um, oversight? <laughs> I guess Nick, you want I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. They've written the law in Europe and nobody still knows how it's going to work, mm-hmm. right? Nobody knows how the GDPR is going to work because mm-hmm. it's all kinds of words like reasonable in mm-hmm. there. Uh, so it's going to be dragging through courts for forever. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the right amount? That's in the eye of the beholder. So I'm going to 
contribute to the medicine one, I'm going to say everybody should give up a little privacy in medical mm -hmm. data because then we can get better care for everybody. If, it's, if you give up a little privacy, I can send you better ads. Is it worth it? Mm -hmm. You get to decide, and society will settle on it. Mm -hmm. I would like to know what's being done with my data. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's unreasonable. Uh, so if I ask, I would rather Cambridge Analytica did not have it, mm -hmm. for example. Mm -hmm. But one case at a time, yeah. I, I don't have a general rule for that one. Well, it also seems as though, um, uh, so one can opt into to something like Facebook. One can choose to be involved in LinkedIn or not. You say, say you want to stay away from all that stuff. You're not interested in participating in social media or following uh, um, these platforms. But that still doesn't mean that your data isn't out there and known and being, you just mentioned applying for a bank loan. And, uh, mm -hmm. um, you know, that's something, you, you wouldn't know who had that information, right? Unless you ask. And, and, you, and they may not even know the people you're talking to at the bank. I don't know whose data I have. Yeah. That's how it should be. But that makes it super hard for an individual to track down what's been done mm -hmm. with data about them. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And also, you know, in terms of uh, uh, the uh, data mining uh, on the user data, it really depends on the uh, granularity of the data analysis. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you do the analysis on the individual user level. Sometimes you do this at a group level or team level or even the uh, society level. Mm -hmm. So if you do the aggregation level data mining, then that's not going to be the issue. If you do more of this kind of individual level analysis, for example, mm -hmm. you can link the data from your credit card, from your online social media accounts, your patient record, and all of that. If you try to link all of these things together, do this kind of very large scale uh, individual level data mining, then I think the privacy is going to become an issue. Mm -hmm. uh, a lot of people opt can opt out, but however, I think most people just do not even look at the privacy notice at all. They just throw them away. Uh, they didn't realize, you know, by throwing them away, they gave up the rights for their data to be sold. Right, right. Yeah. And uh, Tong, what do you find with your students when you're when you're um, teaching? Uh, do you teach? You said you teach undergraduates. Yeah. So when you first encounter these students and uh, talk with them about AI and about data mining, all of these things, uh, do do you feel that they sort of already are are um, eager to get into it? Some of them are here. No. <laughs> <laughs> I think at the, at the beginning, the students seems they just, they seem to find the data mining a little bit hard to understand, right? But uh, throughout the course, I think they'll they, they will get more and more excited, ex especially uh, at the end of the course. Every time we will do a final project, so students will be divided into groups of four and five. They pick their own uh, topic. They choose their own data set, and then they will spend a whole month working on it, and then they will write a final report and do a presentation. And some of them will dress very nicely and give a very beautiful presentation. And then I always do a, like a feedback uh, collection after the final project. And they all really think highly of the, the experience. They said they learn a lot from the course. So yeah, I think, so I think the students mm -hmm. can benefit a lot from the data mining class. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It also goes back to the question about privacy, young people in general, don't have the same yeah. expectation of privacy that old people like me right. have. Right. 
they're used to putting their life online mm -hmm. because it's what everybody does. Yeah. They don't take a second thought about it. Yeah. Uh, so the expectation of privacy has lowered mm -hmm. because it wasn't there. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So then obviously when kids are coming to college here and they, and they graduate and they want to go out and work in the world, is this an incredibly uh, useful background to have? <laughs> yes. Yes. Startlingly. Mm -hmm. um, and because I was the department head for a while, all the employers came to me. Some of them are represented here. Mm -hmm. uh, we can't generate people with these skills fast enough to meet the need even mm. here, even locally, yeah. let alone nationally. Really? Yeah. Really? Huh. Yeah. When they find out the stuff that we're training these students to do, uh, people want in on that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, so, well, gosh, I, I just want to thank you all for talking with us this afternoon about some of the work you do. And uh, it's all very, um, I think, for some of us who experience interactions with AI but don't work in it every day, it seems really clouded and, and uh, um, sort of hard to find your way through it, but I suspect if you have the focus that you guys do in the College of Business and you, you have the protocols you work with, you can, you can make something out of it. You still like getting good recommendations, mm -hmm. whether you realize it or not. You know, that Netflix cue is pretty good, right? Yeah. yeah. They know you. Yeah. It's cool when Netflix knows you. Yeah. Well, yeah. that means somebody else yeah. knows you too. Yeah. So. Yeah. 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 Huh. Well, uh, Tong Wang, thank you very much, and Patrick Fan sure. and Nick Street, really <clears throat> appreciate it very much for starting us off. And uh, uh, I hope you all stay with us. In the next segment, we're going to be talking about medicine and artificial intelligence in medicine. Uh, so I'm Joan Kerr for International Programs. Thanks very much for joining us. Please give them a hand. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Hello, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. I'm Joan Kerr, and we're coming to you from Merge in downtown Iowa City. Our topic tonight is artificial intelligence, and in this segment, we're going to explore advances in medicine that are made possible by AI. Just next to me is Dr. Michael Abramoff, Watsky Professor of Ophthalmology and Visual Sciences and of Electrical and Computer Engineering and Biomedical Engineering in the UI Department of Ophthalmology and Visual Sciences. Uh, Dr. Abramoff is also the the founder and CEO of IDX, and we'll have a chance to talk about that in just a bit. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Next to him is Dr. Eric Hoffman, a professor in the UI departments of radiology, internal medicine, and biomedical engineering, also the director of the Advanced Pulmonary Physiomic Imaging Laboratory. Thanks for being here, Dr. Hoffman. Mm -hmm. And at the far end, uh, you remember Nick Street. He was in our first segment. He's with the College of Business, but I've uh, come to understand that he's also the head of health informatics here at the University of Iowa. So it's a pleasure to have you join us. Thanks. I'm never leaving. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, um, Michael, could you help us understand what diabetic retinopathy is and why this, the search for um, better diagnostic devices has been such an important part of your life? Yeah, sure. Um, you know, as far as my background is concerned, yes. it will be relevant later, so let me go a little bit into mm -hmm. that. I'm a retinal specialist, meaning I treat patients with the, uh, diseases of the retina. I actually just came from clinic just now, <laughs> at clinic today. Um, but I also have a background and a PhD in computer science. Oh, yeah. And uh, we used to call it 
image analysis and now you know using machine learning we call it artificial intelligence but there's a longer background to that and so I wanted to combine these two to to do better in medicine and better treat and diagnose patients and so that's where that interest comes from because retina is is my field and diabetic retinopathy happens to be the most important cause of blindness mm -hmm. it's a complication of diabetes that if you have diabetes you know, most people with diabetes fear nothing more than going blind. And so it's really important for people with diabetes. It's, uh, it causes blindness in about 25,000 people a year mm. in the U.S. alone. Yeah. Many more lose vision as a cause mm. of that. And so um, prevention is really important. And the problem is that if you catch it early, we really know how to treat it well. We can treat about 95%. We can treat well if you detect it early. And then... Uh, you know, vision loss is unlikely. Mm -hmm. However, if you catch it late when there's already symptoms, typically it's too late and there's permanent damage. Mm -hmm. So the, the, the trick is to catch these patients early, and the problem is that that is not happening on a large enough yeah. scale. There are about 30 million people with diabetes in the U.S., about 500 million ar around the world, mm -hmm. and most of them do not get an eye exam every year, which is necessary to determine whether the disease is in the retina or not. Mm -hmm. If there is, then you will treat them. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I said, well, let's use artificial intelligence with a, with a you know, easy-to-use camera to make the situation better. Mm -hmm. And I've been doing research on that for maybe 30 years, working on neuroscience and how we already talked about it, how neural networks work. Mm -hmm. And the later incorporating into machine learning systems to detect disease in retinas. And about in 2000, I thought, well, it actually works. I showed it in scientific conferences and nothing happened. Mm -hmm. And then I realized, well, maybe I need to do many more scientific publications, which is over 200 now, mm -hmm. about the same and similar subjects. And I thought, well, if we do all these publications, it will happen, and people will start using it. Nothing happened. <laughs> and so then I heard, well, if you do intellectual property and you go for patents and you register your patent, then uh, big companies will come in and take over and actually make it happen. I did yeah. that and I now I have 13 patents and nothing happened. <laughs> and so, the long story short, uh, I needed to do it all myself and therefore I founded IDX now nine years ago here in Iowa City. I came to the US now 16 years mm -hmm. ago. That was the best decision <laughs> of my life, mm -hmm. except marrying my wife. My wife is not the only <laughs> just to make sure. And, and so uh, that meant uh, two things, I think, uh, raising money, Mm -hmm. um, and we can go into that if you want. And second of all, um, I, I really care about safety. I think the benefits, the potential benefits of AI in healthcare are enormous. Mm -hmm. Cost savings, improved quality, mm -hmm. better access for patients, uh, more easy access. Mm -hmm. But if we do it wrong, you get what you s just saw happening in self-driving cars, mm -hmm. where last year there was an accident and someone died, and now many companies pulled yeah. back temporarily, but it can set the mm -hmm. field back for years. And so if we focus on safety, transparency, that's the only way to do this. So mm -hmm. I thought early on, if you want to do this, you need to be safe and show that you're safe. So I went to the FDA because that's the regulatory body that is the most strict in the world. Mm -hmm. And I came in and I said, well, I want to do this autonomous AI, meaning an artificial intelligence that makes a clinical decision by itself, yeah. no doctor involved. <laughs> uh, and they weren't too happy with that idea. And so <laughs> we slowly started working together on, on how to do it safely and also, which was interesting. It, you know, I've, I've been saying this for a while now, it needs to be safe, it needs to be efficient to do the cost savings, mm -hmm. and it needs to be equitable, meaning 
useful and accurate for all people from all races mm -hmm. and ethnicities. And that actually, the FDA agreed with that and we created endpoints for the study and all sorts of things about the design. And that resulted in the FDA uh, authorization last year, April. Mm -hmm. And that was a big moment because the first mm -hmm. time ever that the FDA approved something that it makes a clinical decision without a doctor or any human involved. Hmm. So long story short, uh, yeah, yeah we, we're there, we did it uh, with the entire team of IDX, mm -hmm. which is now 50 people all, all in Iowa, right? Mm -hmm. We created mm -hmm. an entire organization hmm. that's now rapidly growing in Iowa. And so we have a pipeline of other things you want to do in the retina, in the ear, in other organs. So there's a whole thing to do with this autonomous AI, but again, we have been hammering so hard and keep hammering on this safety mm -hmm. aspect, mm. efficiency and equity. Yeah. So I will stop here because of Oh, no, no, the <laughs> fascinating. But the um, uh, one of the wonderful advantages here, as I understand it, is that uh, you don't have to have an actual licensed physician um, interpret the results. No, and, and exactly. And so at how in practice is that in a CVS or Walgreens or a primary care clinic, mm. Typically, where people with diabetes are, they don't walk around in the hospital waiting for me. Yeah, sure. You know, they will probably need to travel four hours and wait mm. maybe three months to get to me. So where they are is where they get their diabetes care, which yeah. is typically primary care clinics. And so you need to have the staff there be able to do it. So we made sure that it's a high school graduation. Wow. On the only thing required to do this this exam, and then it takes about two by one feet, to, to, so it's a very small space. It's easy to use, mm -hmm. and it's immediate. So when you come in for your diabetes workup, mm -hmm. you know, your vitals and talking to the doctor that you should not smoke and you need to lose weight mm -hmm. and you eat more veggies, and everyone mm -hmm. knows the story, mm -hmm. but that's what diabetes mm -hmm. patients typically need to hear. And so um, uh, right then and there, they can have this retinal exam done in, in two minutes few minutes mm -hmm. and the diagnostic quality is better than me as a retinal specialist so mm -hmm. you have the excess you lower the cost because definitely it's way cheaper than me i mean you mm -hmm. don't want to know what i charge mm -hmm. for <laughs> if you just come to see me for a few minutes mm -hmm. uh and um well like i said it's yeah. more efficient yeah. uh, and the quality is better so mm -hmm. suddenly you change the entire paradigm of primary care where it used to be well they need to refer anything out yeah. that they can't yeah. do yeah. to a specialty a specialist like me but now the more we use AI, the more they can do right then and there, sort of superpowering these primary care dogs. Fantastic. And I know that the, the company has now, um, you've searched for funding, you've gotten quite a lot of funding to pursue, I guess, uh, the creation of these. Uh, what Now that you've developed this, the FDA has approved it, you know that it works well. What happens next in terms of the business? Yeah, so we... Uh, I, or as a group, we raised $22 million from angel investors. Mm. And then with that, we created a clinical trial and the products oh, and, sure. and the entire sure. company. Mm -hmm. And with that, we, we got the FDA authorization. Mm -hmm. And then we raised another, another $33 million mm -hmm. to essentially go to market and create additional products. Yeah. And so what we're focused on now is just getting into as many patients yeah. as soon as we can. Uh, and we're doing well on that. I mean, about every week, every other week, we have a new go live, which means some primary care system in some hospital system is, mm -hmm. is uh, starting to use it. Last week we were in New Orleans. That was very exciting because it's a very impoverished and, and underserved population. Sure. And so that was very exciting for them to suddenly have this AI mm -hmm. make the diagnosis. Patients were very excited. Staff was very excited. Mm -hmm, it was mm -hmm. just a very exciting time in the company. It must be incredibly rewarding personally knowing that you've been able to get it this far. Yeah, it's very cool. I mean, if you see grateful patients, that's mm -hmm. awesome. If you see 
these primary care providers wh where they didn't know what to do with all these people with diabetes mm -hmm. needed an eye exam and suddenly it's solved for them. Yeah. That's very wonderful. We I also heard yesterday that one of the you know foremost hundred AI companies in the world, one of them is us. So that's wow. you know, you get stuff well, like that. Well. It's very nice. Yeah. yeah, very nice. Well congratulations. My goodness. Maybe able to hear more about it later. So thank sure. you. Thank you. Um Dr. Hoffman, hi, Eric. Uh, hi. so you are in radiology and internal medicine, biomedical engineering, and I know that you uh, also head up the um, imaging laboratory um, for lung care. Um, tell us how artificial intelligence has made uh, a change in the way you examine patients and what you can tell patients. Well, we work with advanced, mostly CT x-ray uh, techniques, and CT has evolved to where we can image the lung with submillimeter uh, spatial resolution dynamically. So it means that when you do a CT exam, you get possibly as ma many as 600 to 1,000 slices of the body. And then if you have it dynamically at multiple lung volumes, it reaches a point where a human can't just look at it and make reasonable uh, uh, diagnoses or reasonable estimates of, of the underlying physiology or anatomy. So uh, I got my start in the mid-1970s uh, at the Mayo Clinic where when Hounsfield was trying to build a, a scanner that made a single slice of the dead brain, we were trying to image the beating heart and breathing lung. And back then, We'd scan for 20 seconds and take two months to reconstruct the images mm -hmm. and take another half a year to analyze the images. And that brought about some understandings, but it was very slow uh, progress. But over the years, as the scanners become faster, the detectors become more efficient, the computers uh, are able to compute uh, more efficiently, that uh, we're able to get the computers to identify where the lung is, where the lobes are, where the sublobar segments are, where the airways are, where the blood vessels are. And um, with all that information, we can begin to subdivide lung disease that's been classified as a single entity, such as COPD, chronic obstructive pulmonary mm -hmm. disease, or asthma we can subclassify them into uh, uh, disease patterns. And there's possibly been uh, miracle pharmaceuticals to cure a uh, lung disease that would have gone hidden uh, because it's applied to everybody that's labeled COPD and they're labeled COPD simply on the basis of how fast they can blow in a tube. Mm -hmm. Uh, and maybe the drug worked perfectly in one group of people, but it was tried out in a much larger group of people, and the advances were very slow. So we're, we've uh, uh, turned our software into a company, similar to you just heard about the eye. We have Vita Diagnostics, that's a company here in Coralville, uh, uh, that is able to automatically pull out all these components of the lung and uh, label the airways and so forth. And then it's been applied in 
many large multi-center trials trying to subphenotype or subcharacterize these lung diseases. And what we're finding is that indeed there is very different patterns of everybody that's been lumped together in a single entity. Uh, for instance, we're finding there's a couple of variants in airway, the pattern of the airways branching in the lung, and those are much more prominent in people that get COPD, and in fact, uh, much more prominent in people that get COPD that never smoked. Uh, uh, so we think that it's almost a fingerprint of the lung uh, that says that the lung developed in such a way that possibly at the very periphery of the lung, it may be abnormal, the same as the central airway trees that we can see. And if it's abnormal all the way out there, that perhaps the lung is trapping inhaled particulate differently than uh, another lung. Then we've, uh, there's uh, new CT scanners that can image where uh, a gas that shows up under x-ray uh, xenon or krypton, it can image regional ventilation, or you can inject iodine, it can image blood flow. And so we're finding that there's a group of people that have an abnormal response to inflammation. You smoke, you get regional inflammation, and uh, if you have regional inflammation, you flood the air spaces in the lung and you get low, what's called hypoxia, low oxygen. And the lungs designed that if you have low oxygen to shut down blood flow and send it where there's better oxygen. But if you have low oxygen because your lungs inflamed, that you then uh, uh, don't want to shut down the blood flow. But a certain portion of the population shuts down the blood flow and if they smoke or if they breathe environmental pollutants or whatever, uh, they'll be the ones that get inflammation, but so having or get COPD. So having that sort of an insight, you can develop pharmaceuticals that, uh, that will uh, resolve this constricted uh, blood vessel. So these are all examples of things that, that artificial intelligence is able to allow us to resolve now. That the image reconstructions from the, from the CT scanners that are very high resolution couldn't have been done before. That, that in the mid-1970s with the machine we built at Mayo, we'd get, 20, again, 20 seconds worth of scanning, and two months later, we'd have the image. Mm -hmm. and, and to get these insights, it takes uh, uh, un imaging lots of people. Uh, so you can't image one person and analyze them a month later. Uh, you have to, uh, the new computers almost give instantaneous uh, reconstruction of the images, and then the software uh, in minutes will segment and separate out the components of the lung and that any individual uh, with all those components extracted, we spit out over a thousand different measurements uh, of the lung. And then you can look at the texture of the lung that Nick has been involved with us on some of this, that uh, the computer can look at the multiple different texture of the lung and separate out which bit is emphysema-like, which bit is fibrotic, which bit 
uh, uh, has abnormal patterns of blood vessels or blood flow uh, and so forth. So that, and then with these large multicenter studies uh, coming online using these imaging methodologies and using this analysis uh, methodology, we, are, we bring to Iowa City tens of thousands of CT scans in a year uh, to analyze these people. And then we follow them over multiple years. We have one study that we've studied people for over 15 years now. And every few years, we um, get CT scans. And so that opens up this um, uh, new avenue of, of big data and deep learning uh, to uh, throw in uh, these images with a diagnosis and the computer can now separate out uh, uh, people into groupings that we never even uh, mm -hmm. dreamed of. That we found in one study uh, six different types of emphysema based on the pa pattern of the emphysema and two of them are highly correlated uh, with genetic uh, ab oh. variants. Yeah. And then looking at what those genes do, it tells us what might have caused the emphysema in those cases, mm -hmm. and it informs the pharmaceutical companies uh, hmm. to understand it. Yeah. So, so one of the things that has become clear to me as you've described all of this is that there really is an, an interactive team. Uh, there's the work that you might do. There's the, the computer um, analyst group that's involved in this. There are the pharmaceutical um, investigators. And, and in order to, to move things to the next level, sort of everybody kind of has to be familiar with what the other one is doing. Yeah, it's become popular these days to talk about team science. Yeah that yeah. we would have never been able to do anything we do without a team all the way of back course, to the yeah. beginning of what we do. Mm -hmm. uh, it's electrical engineers, bioengineers, mechanical engineers, uh, pulmonologists, radiologists, mm -hmm. surgeons, mm -hmm. pathologists, mm -hmm. uh, et cetera, that they're all an important mm -hmm. member of the team. Wow. Well, let's go to one of the members of the team here and talk to Nick for a second. So, Nick, you head up uh, health informatics here. Uh, could you just describe what health informatics is in the context of the university? The big picture is just uh, computing applied to healthcare. Mm -hmm. So, I bring the AI machine learning sort of background, and so we can, uh, our people and our students can serve as the person developing that part of the system. But in your next segment, you'll have uh, a human-computer interaction expert, and that's an important part. The, the app is no good if nobody uses it. Mm -hmm. um, anything that actually uses people and computing to build a better system to deliver something which in this case is better healthcare. Mm -hmm. And this is a big interdisciplinary collaborative uh, program between the computing sciences on, on this side of the river and the health sciences on the other side. So mm -hmm. it, it actually started in the College of Nursing, now mostly the College of Medicine and Pharmacy and Public Health, mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and now dentistry. Mm -hmm. They've been yeah. slow, but we're getting them in. Mm-hmm. 
So I know that the goal of all of this, of course, is to help people live uh, healthier and, and um, perhaps longer lives and, and uh, you know, prevent blindness and so on and so forth. But um, do we think also that AI will be helpful in terms of managing the costs of healthcare as we go forward? Certainly, it seems as though um, the IDX developments offer tremendous cost, sa cost savings for... Yeah, IDX wouldn't exist if the goal is to create cost savings. Yeah, yeah, quality. right. And so without it, we don't, you know, I don't want to do it. Sure, sure. Yeah, and and what do you think? I know these machines are expensive and people are expensive, so it's uh, this entails some cost, but one would hope that um, the advances that would result from this kind of work would be worth it. Right, well... We may learn by grouping patients together and identifying pharmaceuticals or other interventions that might treat a certain group of people. Uh, we may also, we hope that we'll also find new tools that can much eat more easily and mm -hmm. much less expensively identify that person. We sure. first need these uh, expensive machines and large data and so forth mm -hmm. to cluster the people together, come up with the diagnoses, but it doesn't mean that you need a $3 million scanner in uh, the east of India in a village of people that make less than $3 a year. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the hope is that this will filter down and, and um, uh, I, I think that that that's part of the challenge. Sure. I'm going to say data and expertise are not expensive. Okay? Data is cheap. That's why we have so much of it. Uh, collecting, storing, managing, it's not that complicated anymore. And we have high-performance computing. We have a fabulous high-performance computing group here. And if that's not enough, there's Amazon. And just store stuff there. Um, when we talk about these academic programs, we have a lot of expertise for building these models. Mm -hmm. These guys are expensive, <laughs> okay? <laughs> what we need is answers because we can't build models until we have a sufficient number of cases that an expert has labeled, mm -hmm. okay? If I'm predicting a stock, I can just watch for a couple of seconds and I'll see where it goes. But to diagnose a disease, Mm -hmm. needs an expert label. And so that's the bit that's expensive. Mm -hmm. But we have, we have armies of students that are wanting to solve these problems uh, and, and have the expertise to do it. So this is one of the exciting parts of connecting the two sides of the river here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in our experience, data is, is very expensive, but that means good quality data. Mm -hmm. So there are tons of, of low quality data out there you can buy, go to any hospital, buy their patient data, whether the patients agree with that or not, you know, mm -hmm. maybe unknown. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you have one doctor look at it, and typically that's not good enough. Mm -hmm. uh, averaging a couple of doctors typically is not what mm -hmm. is actually the state of disease. Mm -hmm. You want to mm -hmm. look at what is the best outcome for the patient mm -hmm. and try to relate what you see in the images with that. And it's terribly expensive. And, sure. and actually, so we, we are very focused on getting high-quality data. We needed very high-quality data for clinical trials and mm -hmm. for building the first one, we're getting high quality data for the others, but now you're looking at hundreds to thousands of dollars per sure, patient. Sure. And so um, it's in, in fact a challenge, but you know, we'll solve that. Mm -hmm. and, and, but uh, yeah, I see the problem as a bit different. Yeah, well you mentioned earlier also that you, you um, 
we're very pleased that um, you went through the F that the FDA approved your product because the FDA has the highest standards. Yeah, that, that's helping yeah. tremendously. So a, I, uh, you know, again, if we don't do it safely and transparently, yeah. there will be a pushback and we'll lose all the advantages. Mm -hmm. And you know, my standpoint is always U.S. healthcare is the best in the world, mm -hmm. but it's way too expensive. Yeah. And so I'm focused on decreasing the cost, well, if possible, improving the quality, which is what we did with this product. It's mm -hmm. actually better than someone like me. Mm -hmm. But um, sorry, now I forget yeah. where. I was no, about. no, no. That's that's. Yeah. I think I think we got there. But but so this is a good place to say thank you, Dr. Abramov, sure. Dr. Hoffman, and Nick Street. Thank you for joining us for this segment. Really a pleasure to hear about your work, and good luck with everything. Thank you. Thank you. Please thank our guests. Hello, I'm Joan Kerr, and welcome to World Canvas from International Programs at the University of Iowa. This is part three of our program on artificial intelligence. Our guests in this segment will approach the topic from fields as diverse and yet interconnected as computer science, vehicle engineering, and educational testing. I'm pleased to introduce Yuchi Huang, a senior research scientist at ACT Next, and Yuchi is just next to me. Next to him is Dan McGee, associate professor in the University of Iowa Department of Industrial and Systems Engineering and the director of the National Advanced Driving Simulator here at uh, the University of Iowa. Thanks, Dan. And at the far end, we have Juan Pablo Orcad, associate professor in the University of Iowa Department of Computer Science and associate director for informatics education and the UI Informatics Initiative. That word again, we've been hearing informatics a lot tonight. So thanks, Juan Pablo, for being here. Thank you. Um, I think I'll start with you, Juan Pablo. Mm -hmm. um, as I understand it, you work in the area of human-computer interaction. What does that mean? Uh, it means that we study how to make technologies useful, usable, and enjoyable for people, and generally for society. Mm -hmm. uh -huh. And so how has AI influenced the work you've been doing or the work you do now? Yes, I think AI is influencing most areas in computer science and engineering these days. Um, and there's a variety of reasons for that, but among them are that uh, the cost to gather data, the cost to process it, the cost to store it has significantly gone down. So it has enabled a wide variety of applications, some of which we've been hearing mm -hmm. earlier today that were not possible before. Uh, and the other thing that's been happening is that uh, there are tools to do, I guess, relatively simple artificial intelligence uh, tasks uh, that have significantly lowered the barrier to uh, having access to those AI techniques. Mm -hmm. So whereas somebody maybe 15, 20 years ago might have had to have a fair amount of expertise in artificial intelligence uh, to do certain things, now students with some introductory courses in computing can access the same tools. Uh, this has significantly expanded the possible applications and also the number of people who can, uh, can get things done. Mm -hmm. And so what kinds of things um, um, do you share with your students when you're teaching these courses? Yeah, so uh, when teaching courses, uh, we can have simple examples, for example, of uh, classifying information. So mm -hmm. take the Federalist Papers, and for the ones where you're not sure who <laughs> the author was, you might uh, write a little code to classify Mm -hmm. uh, who the author is based on other writings by potential uh, candidate authors. Uh, so you could do simple things like that that might have taken a lot of computing mm -hmm. power before expertise and now are mm -hmm. much easier to, to do with the uh, uh, systems that we have. Mm -hmm. 
Well, and I, you know, if we think of some of the tools that many of us use every day, um, something like an Alexa, and we ask a question, and maybe she doesn't quite understand what my what my question is the first time through. I keep trying it, whatever. This is this is a certain kind of, I guess, machine learning device. It, yeah. So I think it, and it is a way something that's coming up in human computer interaction mm -hmm. a lot. Also, mm -hmm. is uh, is agents and how do we interact? Mm -hmm. with computers in ways that are different from traditional mouse, keyboard type, or, mm -hmm. or even touchscreen interactions. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you have to get into uh, speech recognition, obviously, but mm -hmm. natural language processing also, uh, and trying to better understand contextual information to mm -hmm. uh, figure out what the, uh, the user wants. Mm -hmm. And there's still a long way to go, but for very specific tasks, mm -hmm. I think uh, that voice agents are doing well. Mm -hmm. uh, if you go with more... Uh, more generic questions that are require a little more context than that. Some mm -hmm. have a harder time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, what have been some of the breakthroughs over over the last? Oh, I don't know. If we go back twenty years, uh, what have been some of the the big breakthroughs along the way? Well, I would say the the last ten years, I would say, are the the era of of big data and of machine learning in particular. And again, they they were enabled by. Uh, all the devices that are out there capturing information mm -hmm. um, and inexpensive storage, so information that organizations were not able to keep before because it was too expensive to keep. Now mm -hmm. they're keeping it. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, and also uh, very high processing power. So we can have thousands of computers working on a problem at the same time, uh, something that was not possible before, and we can do that relatively mm -hmm. inexpensively. Mm -hmm. So you and others have mentioned all of this data that is out there. How does one go about getting that data? Is it something you purchase for a particular um, project? Or maybe some of it is just shared easily and freely, but I suspect there's a, a cost or a, a protocol you have to go through. Yeah, so I think uh, one of the interesting issues that this brings up as a societal issue is who controls the data Yeah, uh, and who owns it. And I think... Uh, Data is definitely going to be correlated with power uh, in, in the next few decades and probably forever. Mm -hmm. um, and, and that's one of the big questions. Who controls it and uh, what do they do with it? And mm -hmm. to what degree do we as individuals have control over data about us? Mm -hmm. Now, I, I would say there's other areas where it's less controversial. So mm -hmm. say if we took, take physical sciences and we want to have better models of climate, for example, that's, you know, that's data that in many ways is public, gathered by... Uh, mm -hmm. NASA and other uh, mm -hmm. entities, and uh, that's less of an issue. I think the controversies are going to come with and are coming with. Unless you just don't happen people. to believe in climate science, then it's controversial, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um, Yuchi, I see you kind of nodding along um, as Juan Pablo is talking here. Are, are there other sort of big breakthrough moments that you can think of uh, in the development of AI that have really push things forward? I guess um, it's deep learning. Yeah. Yep. Uh, although deep learning algorithm has been invented like um, maybe 20 years ago, mm -hmm. I mean the basic idea, the concepts, but um, back in 10 years, we have very strong computers. Uh, we have like tons of like uh, uh, the capacity yeah. to store data. Yeah. So from that time, deep learning is booming and uh, start to uh, like invent every subfield of computer science, yeah. So a lot of like uh, very like breaking through applications like facial recognition, mm -hmm. 
uh, object recognition, object detection. They are uh, like voice recognition. They are like everywhere right now. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, yeah. Well, um, and Dan, let's pull you into this as well and uh, talk to us about your work with uh, automated vehicles and just basically with transportation and, and all of the changes that are made possible by this kind of technology. Yeah, I think uh, the University of Iowa has a really long history in uh, advanced technology research in, in the automotive uh, side of things. And I think one of the great headlines about the University of Iowa is, and this was touched on in the earlier panels, is how interdisciplinary we are uh, at the University of Iowa. Uh, this is inherent from this side of the river to the other side of the river, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's computer science, engineering, medicine, uh, pharmacy, uh, we're all bringing that together and, and making some really cool discoveries mm -hmm. and really pushing the edge of, uh, of technologies. Mm -hmm. uh, so for uh, over 25 years now, we've been doing automated vehicle work here, sort of operating quietly uh, <laughs> here in Iowa. Uh, in fact, most people don't know that Joan was part of that original <laughs> first wave. In 1994, mm -hmm. Joan's voice was used in our first uh, simulated automated vehicle. <laughs> to, uh, and so uh, she goes way back. Uh, I missed my big lab. chance, though. If you had been just a little further along, I might have been the voice of Siri. Oh, that's uh, right. Exactly. That's, I would have been much more pleasant, much more pleasant than she is. But anyway. Yes. <laughs> Uh, so we generally, you know, we talk about what our uh, production cars are today. So we're coming up on the 2020 model year. Uh, those technologies that are in those cars today are were studied here about 20 years ago. Most of the technologies uh, in crash avoidance systems came through the University of Iowa as part of the original research and development and regulatory research. So we've touched on that research for a long time. Now we're focusing much more another 20, 50 years away on um, much more robotically controlled vehicles. And so the AI, the machine learning, the deep learning that's going on now is much more on the mathematical side of how we can describe behavior of mixed traffic. So it's not like we're gonna get rid of all of our manually driven cars tomorrow mm -hmm. or in 20 years or even 50 years. So how we interact with automated vehicles is, is where we're focused uh, today. And, and how, how do you figure things like that out? So what we do is every one of us, the way we drive, the way we steer, the way we modulate our accelerator pedal, uh, we're different. It's a different signature. It's a fingerprint. And so as we track how you drive and how mm -hmm. I drive and how Juan Pablo drives, we essentially put together those signatures and we're very predictable about how mm -hmm. we drive. Mm -hmm. Some of us in here in the room are very aggressive drivers. Some are much more passive. And so we can start to understand how you are going to interact with uh, an automated vehicle, a self-driving car, a robot that's out there. Uh, and so one of the issues is that, that self-driving cars get bullied. Um, they get bullied in a very different way that we talk about bullying. But if you're a pedestrian walking you know, in downtown Iowa City and you see an automated car, you're gonna walk in front of it because you know it's gonna stop. Hmm. If you encounter a self-driving car at a four-way intersection, you're always gonna pull out in front. Uh, and so <laughs> these cars, because they're bullied, they're stopping all the time and then they hold up traffic. Uh, so we're developing new um, machine learning uh, <laughs> algorithms 
to be more aggressive because I know how you drive uh -huh. and you drive, I'm going to guess you're mm -hmm. probably pretty cautious. Mm -hmm. I'm going to, I'm going to, my robot car is going to pull out in front of you and we're going to, we develop uncertainty. Sometimes I'm going to pull out in front of you and sometimes I'm not. Mm -hmm. um, so much like you all love roundabouts, uh, Roundabouts are really safe because they're very uncertain. You don't really know what that person is going to do. Most people hate roundabouts. If you do <laughs> consumer surveys, they despise them, but they're super safe. And why they're safe is because it's uncertain. So we're creating uncertainty in the algorithms of the next generation of cars, but on purpose. But we're measuring everybody else's behavior and their profile. So the automated car that we're talking about would not only know how it it is programmed to behave or think or whatever, but it would detect me and my driving style when I'm sitting in my own car over there. Yeah, so we're just, we're oh. each vehicle is communicating uh, mm. whether it's through your key fob. Uh, wow! Uh, just like you know, your car might know your seat position. Mm -hmm. uh, we're broadcasting that, if you will. Uh, and we can also measure that. So we have sensors around traffic signals that can look out. You'll see like these little white uh, uh, cameras. Uh, they actually can measure how fast a car is approaching an intersection. Mm -hmm. We can take those data and I can predict if that's an aggressive driver, if they're entering a particular intersection, if they're braking hard, uh, then I can tell if that's an aggressive driver or not. So then we incorporate whether we're going to pull out in front of that car or not. Mm -hmm. We still mm -hmm. have all these layers and buffers of safety, mm -hmm. but we're going to we're going to take a shot at a person who is a much more timid approach than a person that has an aggressive approach. Wow! Wow! Um, do you envision a time? So my mother is getting older now, and she no longer drives, but she misses it every day because of the lack of freedom to just you know go to the grocery store, or take a drive if she wants to. Will there be a time? someday when people may have their own vehicles, but that they won't have to be responsible for, you know, managing all the time? Yeah, I mean, I think it's the next generation is sort of the Uber and Lyft model uh -huh. versus owning a car. Hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty skeptical that we're going to have self-driving cars uh, mm -hmm. uh, to the point of uh, ubiquity. Uh, and that means, like, most of you, probably 100% of you, own a smartphone. So smartphones, GPS navigation is ubiquitous. To move that forward so we have almost all the cars, 90% of the cars are self-driving, we're looking at a very, very long-range cast. Uh, mm -hmm. So we've been talking about cars, but what about other kinds of transportation? Um, do, you, do you work on uh, vehicles that are, are really big, like semis, and, and that's, that's sort of... Um, you know, machine and load and so on as well, or is it transferable from a smaller vehicle? Yeah, I mean, to uh, trucks, uh, uh, you know, uh, driver behavior is mm -hmm. very similar whether you're driving a heavy truck, even though you got to, you know, brake way sooner. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, we're really looking at how to uh, make driver error, you know, something of the past. Mm -hmm. You know, over, uh, you know, about 95% of crashes are caused by human error. Oh, yeah. And uh, that's a really big number. It's a huge public health issue. You know, last year we killed about 38,000 people in the U.S. alone, about 300 in Iowa, a million people worldwide. So wow. if you take a look at how crashes, uh, injuries, and fatalities stack up against other diseases, it's a big public health issue. Yeah, yeah. 
Hmm, thank you. Um, Yuji, let's go into the field of education, educational research. So you work with ACT and something called ACT Next. Can you yeah. tell us what that is? Yeah. Um, basically, um, everybody knows ACT is a, a company for uh, college admission tests. Mm -hmm. uh, but right now, uh, we're changing. We're changing from a traditional testing company to a learning navigation and assessment company. Mm -hmm. So uh, by, by, by doing this, we, we invested a lot uh, in the past several years to acquire some companies. And uh, uh, for example, we, we, we bought OpenNet. Uh, it's an online platform for videos, video lectures, and other educational content. And uh, we bought uh, Novation. Uh, focusing on uh, it's a company focusing on the uh, the curated learning resources. So we also established ACT Next. Uh, it's a research department uh, conduct research for uh, next generation educational products. Mm -hmm. So um, we are we are doing this uh, trying to uh, satisfy the needs of our customers better. Mm -hmm. And we think AI is going to play a big role. Uh, in this mm -hmm. process. So we, we are doing a lot of projects involving artificial intelligence, machine learning, deep learning, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, we, are, we are in a good progress. So, so you look at student behavior as, they're, as yeah. they're taking the tests or as they're looking at your videos or whatever, you're assessing the user behavior? Yeah, um, um, yes. So um, one example of our, of our applications are uh, is um, uh, adaptive learning. Mm -hmm. So because we can connect um, students' uh, performance data from those like online platforms, so we can use this data to train machine learning models mm -hmm. and to, um, to track and uh, uh, measure the students' ability and to decide to detect whether they are engaged in learning mm -hmm. or provide um, learning letters, learning le letters for them to learn gradually mm -hmm. uh, in a very like efficient way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Hmm. And also, uh, we have other projects like um, uh, uh, try, trying to measure the, uh, the skills of students. So talking about measurement, uh, it's not only, uh, for example, the autom automatic scoring for written essays mm -hmm. or answers for uh, the questions in a test, uh, but also, uh, some measurement to the complex skills, such as um, uh, like collaboration, communication, leadership. And those skills are very important, very critical for the entire life of students. Mm -hmm. So what do we do is that in a lot of scenarios, we can uh, build up like um, some multi-model um, data collection system to collect uh, some uh, verbal, non-verbal, uh, video, audio, uh, like features, uh, so um, we, we we utilize these features to uh, to train like computer vision or nat natural language processing models to uh, get contained information from those signals and then predict uh, the level of the skills and then mm -hmm. provide feedback to students. Mm -hmm. Well, so that makes me curious. I know that one of the criticisms some people have of standardized testing is that <clears throat> it is said that some students are really quite well adapted to taking standardized tests and other students just don't do as well on those because they have a different kind of learning um, pattern or whatever. Um, 
I assume you take that into account as you're trying to build out all these different uh, levels of perception from machine learning. Yeah, so um, yes, I think learning uh, is a very complex uh, procedure for human being. Uh, so one key factor, I, I guess, uh, uh, is uh, learning materials. Yeah. So um, it's, it's quite different from other domains, like for example, self-driving, we have like unlimited data to use because every day and people drive. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, in the in educational domain, mm -hmm. uh, we don't have very we don't have a lot high quality content. Mm. So because creating content is very expensive and uh, time consuming, um, it's quite difficult. Uh, it, it depends on the, the effort of domain experts. It's quite difficult to align very limited um, uh, educational content to the evolving needs of students. Mm -hmm. So how can we handle this? So our target, our like strategy is um, uh, we are going to, uh, for example, for video lectures, we are, we are going to uh, tag and segment uh, the long form video lectures into small, fine grain small pieces mm -hmm. and store them into a very large repo. And then uh, for specific learning topics of students, uh, the algorithm will select uh, those video units automatically and stitch them to a long form video uh, for, the specific, for specific usage of that student. Mm -hmm. So in this way, we can provide better and uh, unlimited resources for students. Yeah. Wow, wow. And, and how did you get into this educational research? Well, um, uh, allow me to share some like, um, personal background information. Mm -hmm. So uh, like nine years ago, I graduated uh, uh, as a PhD in computer science. At that time, I did some like, general research uh, in computer vision, like uh, object recognition, uh, facial recognition. And then I worked for GE and uh, NEC. Uh, to conduct this kind of research. And I feel like I need to find a domain I really have a passion for. Mm -hmm. And later I decided this is education. So and that's why I, I joined, ICT, uh, joined uh, ETS in 2015. Mm -hmm. And in the same year, um, ACT established ACT Next mm -hmm. because they, want, they really want to do some like, um, great research mm -hmm. to push the, the frontier of the education. So I think this is a good chance for me to join. Mm -hmm. yeah, so I, later I join ACT Next. Wow, that's terrific. And, and is your work, is ACT's work in ACT Next um, um, focused on the US? Or is this, do they, does their testing and, and their um, ambition go far beyond the US? Um, basically, we, uh, we, do, we, we conduct the research not only for the US students, mm -hmm. but also for, for the students all over the world. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, let's come back to you, Juan Pablo, and uh, just talk a little bit more about the kinds of uh, the kinds of things you personally work on in your own research. Yeah, so my research is a little bit different. So it's about, uh, as I mentioned, human-computer interaction, and typically I work on designing uh, technologies for uh, groups of people who are typically not the uh, focus of Silicon Valley. So I work mm -hmm. with children, with older adults, with people with uh, specific health conditions. Uh, so one area that's a little bit closer to our topic today is we've been working on uh, 
voice agents interacting with preschool children. Oh. A very young audience. Um, <laughs> and we learned a few things that, that are interesting uh, and a bit unexpected. So, for example, uh, these very young children, three to four years old, they're very interested in knowing how the systems work. Mm-hmm. And they want to control them. <laughs> uh, so uh, there's a, a really, uh, it was interesting that even at that age, there's a, a, a longing for transparency and for control of technology. And I think it gives us a clue as to what are some of the things that we need to do with, with artificial intelligence and uh, putting it at the service of people, but making sure that we have that transparency and that control uh, by the users. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems to me, just observing the little people around me, that they come into the use of technology much more easily than people of you know an older age. I mean, some of the people my age think it's a it's a real wonderful feat to just kind of learn how to use Facebook. You know, it's because it's it's not familiar to us. It isn't what we grew up with. But these little these little kids have it all around them. Yes, and I think it's a, each generation is a different kind of digital native these days. Uh, so the mm-hmm. older digital natives, uh, mm-hmm. I guess my college students now, mm-hmm. uh, and you know they grew up with desktops and laptops. Yeah, sure. Uh, sure. The, a lot of kids who are in elementary school now grew up with uh, touchscreen technology. So yeah. they get to a screen, they touch it, it doesn't do anything. <laughs> I guess it doesn't work. <laughs> um, and, uh, and now we're having a younger generation that's starting to experience this voice agents. Mm-hmm. And around the corner, we have what's called the Internet of Things. So having mm-hmm. more and more items in your household and in, perhaps in yeah. your school be uh, interactive and have mm-hmm. computing embedded in them. Yeah. Uh, so coming into your house and your house knows that you're there and <laughs> doing things. Uh, that might become an expectation. Maybe mm-hmm. the house is not working if that mm-hmm. doesn't happen. Uh, so expectations for what technology is available and what it's supposed to do uh, yeah. are changing. Well, and obviously, like we have now, the expectation of getting any information anytime, anywhere, or being right. able to connect with anyone anytime, anywhere. Mm. That's quite a mm-hmm. quite a change, and mm-hmm. we expect that now. Yeah. Well, and Dan, I, I, you know, some of the things that are available in just mid-price cars today, once upon a time, seemed oh, yeah. unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really the main headline is that, you know, for, you know, an $18,000 Toyota now has automatic emergency braking with a computer vision system. Uh, When I first started doing this 30 years ago, one single pencil beam laser box was $10,000. And that was really crummy uh, (laughs) driving around in traffic trying to measure, you know, how far a car was ahead and how how hard it was braking. But yeah, no, it's an exciting thing. I mean, what I tell people all the time, if you're thinking about buying a car, buy one today because the technology that's here today, it's going to be here for quite a while and it's it's really pretty good. Mm-hmm. Day-to-day, mm-hmm. crash avoidance, keeping you in the lane. Uh, if you get distracted, you know, not by your phone, but mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Uh, it's going to put your brakes on. It's going to make a lot more yeah. comfortable ride. Yeah. Well, thank you all so much. What an interesting uh, conversation. Really appreciate it. Uh, so Juan Pablo Orcad and Dan McGeehy and Yuchi Wang, thank you very much. And I invite all of you to join us for the next World Canvas if you can. It's a different topic. We have a literary topic next time. And the program is called What's in a Word? The Translator's Challenge. And we'll have some really interesting guests for that one. It's March 28th. And I hope you can join us also here in this room. So thank you all for coming tonight. And thank you to all the guests. And we'll see you next time. Thank you.